I am privileged to welcome you to one of a series of institute-sponsored events, each touching upon the theme of forgiveness. The Theology Institute was launched in the late 1990s as a response to the Second Vatican Council's mandate to bring the Church into dialogue with the contemporary world. Through its annual conferences, lecture series, and related events, the Institute promotes serious and innovative interdisciplinary reflection on significant religious, cultural, and political issues of the day. The next scheduled event to follow today's presentation will be a symposium entitled Holy Week After the Holocaust to be held April 1st. It is hoped that you currently have in your hands the handout that will guide us through a mixed lecture readings performance considered of repentance, forgiveness, and the gift of tears, as they interlate with the Eastern Christian spiritual tradition. The initial inspiration and foundational citation for this mixed approach consideration is the following. Let an appropriate scripture passage from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, verses 54 to 62. Having arrested Jesus, they led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest, but Peter was following at a distance. After they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter was sitting among them. And a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the firelight and looking intently at him, said, This man was with him too. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. A little later, another saw him and said, You are one of them too. But Peter said, Man, I am not. After about an hour had passed, another man began to insist, saying, Certainly, this man also was with him. He is Galilean too. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. Immediately, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him, Before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And Peter went out and wept out. And now I'd like to introduce to you Father Joseph Lloyd of the Department of Theology and Religious Studies. 
afternoon. Every time I've heard Coach of the Year, Jay Wright, give a public speech, he always confirms his high ideal of the student athlete. If he could disappear from the sidelines for a moment and reappear here, he would applaud you, I'm sure, for being uh, scholar fans. The subject is tears, and hopefully Marquette students would really need this in a few minutes. <laughs> Tears buoy our joy and flood the deep, jagged, cut channels of our sorrow and pain and grief and remorse. Tears are the effluent of empathy and ecstasy. They are the distillate of fatigue and frustration an inner conflict. Tears serve as the default language of the inner self when ordinary enunciated words fail. This mysterious but never meaningless language may convey itself as a soft murmur in response to slowly mounting inner pressures or as anguished outburst ignited by some <coughs> external tripwire. <coughs> Peter's denial scene, as just read, is common to all four Gospels. In Mark, Matthew, and John, the external trigger is a cock crow. Some conjecture that the cock crow might have been a popular term, or maybe even the specific composition name for the Roman trumpet signal upon the replacement of the night guard with the morning watch. Luke, as just read, alone describes the tripwire of Peter's tears, not as a bird cry or possibly the sound of a horn, Rather, the Lucan trigger is that momentary glance immediately following the cockcrow. For Luke, Jesus is present in that courtyard, perhaps in guarded transit. He turns and fixes upon Peter with, what would you imagine? a non-accusatory gaze that simply conveys. So, here I am, Peter. What is your response? In general, for all of us, tears preside over the most significant and profound moments of our lives. Contemporary commentator Thomas Lutz notes that, quote, tears have been central to myth, religion, poetry, and fiction through the ages, but until recently, 
Remarkably little has been written in an attempt to explain and understand tears themselves. True of areas of psychology, cultural anthropology, and neuroanatomical studies of the lacrimal system. Jeffrey Kotler of Cal State Fullerton, for example, treats weeping as a language system that possesses its own vocabulary and syntax and grammar. This language can be interpreted, but only when a complicating multitude of factors, such as social context and biochemistry <coughs> and subconscious gender scripting are taken into account. As for the area of religion, this presentation plums a tradition of Eastern Christian reflection on the nature and the role of tears in the spiritual life that registers depth, fully down to the fourth century teachings of Saint Macarius of Egypt, Arsenius the Great, and Gregory Nazianzus. <coughs> Employed here also are modern analyses of this tradition to convey a taste of some contemporary commentary, <coughs> Kimberly Christine Patton, Harvard Divinity School <coughs> faculty member, begins her study entitled, How Weep and Moan and Bring It Back to God, colon, Holy Tears in Eastern Christianity. She begins thusly. after my daughter Rosemary was born, on a blue moon in November, a hard birth and in any number of ways, I noticed that her blue eyes continuously streamed fat little tears. The pediatrician told us that like many infants, she had blocked tear ducts and thus could not drain away the fluids that normally wash out our eyes, a condition that should resolve itself within a year, but that would have to be surgically addressed if it did not. As she began to smile and interact with us, her continual weeping became more unnerving, for it was hard not to feel that no matter what her topmost mood, she was responding to a deeper <coughs> level of things. <coughs> to the world of September 11th, a month and a half before her birth, to war and ruin, to irrevocable loss, the tears stopped a few days before her baptism, six months later in May, but not before I had cleaned them out of her ears hundreds of times, marveling at how organic they were, how though they flowed clear, they dried as a membrane, a wet. Not at all like water that could wash away, but very much like blood showing humanity and incarnation. And a little bit further. Thus far, these two tracks have been running parallel, 
the tears of an infant and the parental response they evoke, the tears of compunction shed by the penitent soul, and the divine attention and forgiveness they attract. <coughs> infant tears parallel those of the simple, conscious adult mortal in the crucible of divine encounter. The tracks converge within the religious imagination of both ancient, Jewish, and Orthodox Christian traditions. And one more oral <coughs> footnote. But, but in the ritual mind of the ancient Near East and the Levant, recast in the Christian thought of late antiquity and the Byzantine world, and continuing into Orthodox Christian mysticism, we might strongly wish to argue that weeping persuades God to hear, attend, rectify, and resolve. Paralleling the Methian and Lucan insistence on God's attendance upon the smallest, most transient of events. The fall of a solitary sparrow, St. Simeon, the new theologian, writes, Nothing escapes you, oh my God. My maker, my redeemer, not even a teardrop, nor even a portion of a drop. We will continue to follow quite closely the program that you hopefully have in your hand. At the bottom of the program are some outcome intentions, but perhaps it would be good to look at them uh, right here at the top. The intention here today perhaps is to bring us to the ability to distinguish therapeutic from juridical views of salvation, to distinguish three types of tears and three grades of gifted tears. Elucidate weeping as it demonstrates the frontier of transition between sorrow and consolation. And finally, to explain why the Lenten season is known as the time of bright sadness in the Eastern Christian tradition. And before we dismiss this afternoon, time allowing, perhaps we can open up the floor for your own comments and reflections among these lines. The pages of the Bible are fairly saturated with instances in which tears are shed. 697 instances according to one accounting. I will refer to Peter and maybe four or five others. in the Bible, plus make references to a few scenes from Russian literature and history that bear an explicitly religious theme pertinent to today's subject matter. Perhaps you would care to offer your own instances from the Bible or from religiously themed literature or poetry or fiction or history and propose particular appropriate location within the typology to be described. If you so choose to participate, you can sit back and, and, and experience that the plenum will affirm your opinion, and then you could commit it to writing, and then 
find a publisher, and then um, direct some of your royalties to my favorite charity. Assuming we have a deal, a few introductory remarks need to be registered before filling out the proposed spiritual typology or catalog of tears. The first preliminary note is a soteriological note. That is one that pertains to notions about what salvation and its moods are all about. The particular Eastern Christian tradition presently under consideration by and large represents a therapeutic rather than a juridical view of what salvation is. In the quite common juridical aspect, Christ is pictured as the supreme judge. Sin is construed as the breaking of a law. A penance is punishment. And salvation itself is a suspended sentence decree issued by the merciful judge. Putting all that aside for now, better to assume a therapeutic point of view in which the Lord is not judge, but rather the divine physician of Luke 5.31. To wit, and Jesus answered and said to them, it is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. <coughs> In this perspective, sins are thought to be not transgressions of the law code, but rather as symptoms of spiritual illness. Most primarily, to be saved means to be healed. Laws regulating conduct and worship are not constraints on freedom instituted to ensure peace and order, but rather laws are salutary prescriptions to be fulfilled in the promotion of spiritual health. Penance and asceticisms are physical therapy. Within this therapeutic perspective, monasteries such as Aptina Pustin, the forest retreat with which Dostoevsky and Tolstoy and Turgenev and Nikolai Gogol were very familiar, the monasteries serve as spiritual intensive care wards, while parish life in the world is a kind of continuing communal outpatient care. A second introductory note. We are plumbing the Eastern tra Christian tradition of the predominantly Orthodox Christian <clears throat> states and countries, such as Russia, Ukraine, Romania, Greece, Serbia. 
And it is acknowledged, should it occur to you also, that today's subject matter may indeed, to a significant extent, be personally and culturally conditioned. The tradition itself acknowledges this very sound possibility. Saints Milos of Ancora and John Climacus of the 5th and 6th centuries can be quoted on exactly this very point. <clears throat> I note that it is not uncommon to see silently shed tears during the course of a Russian Orthodox worship service. The Russian Orthodox scholar Nadezhda Gorodetsky, an esteemed lecturer on the religious dimensions of Dostoevsky's works, tells of being unexpectedly surprised and <coughs> delighted to be moved by tears while witnessing an Anglican service while she was in England. Immediately upon the conclusion of the service, she was surrounded by a covey of concerned parishioners. Dear madam, are you quite all right? Um, shall we call you a taxi? Um, perhaps a bright cup of tea for the wait, shall we? I think this vignette serves to underscore something that the scientific community readily affirms, and that is, whatever the cultural propensity to weep, the very sight of tears does evoke a response, usually the caregiving reflex in others. It is to be acknowledged that It's often that students cannot merely check the heavy burdens of their personal issues at a, a classroom doorway. <coughs> I'm sure everyone here has had the experience to note how thoroughly <coughs> solemn and destabilized the classroom atmosphere becomes when all become aware that one particular student is distressed and quietly sobbing. Of course, when a teacher breaks down in the middle of a, a lesson, usually the reaction of the students is almost more homework tonight, and usually they're right. But keeping to the point, it is eminently defensible to assert that, biblically speaking, the mere sight of tears moves God more than the sound of prayer. Within the Eastern Christian tradition, seeing holds precedence over hearing as a pedagogical faculty, an avenue for learning, and a spur of religious affect and imagination. This explains the concerted effort here to stage two readings from Dostoevsky to be seen as well as providing lecture material to be heard. So let us begin. 
a spiritual pathology of the human heart. Bishop Callistos Ware of Diocia, Emeritus Spalding Lecturer of Eastern Christianity at Oxford University, reflected on what topic should be adopted as the prime task for theological reflection in the 21st century. To quote, my own answer is that what is required more than anything else is a fuller understanding of the human person. How little we know about ourselves. The heart is deep. Psalm 63, verse 6. What does it mean to be a human being according to the image and likeness of God? And what does the uniqueness of our personhood lie? What is the meaning of the heart and of the spiritual intellect? End of quote. The Hebrews conceived heart as the central organ that is the seat of self-consciousness, self possessing its own energies, and musings, and perceptions, and knowledge, and understandings, and wisdom, and will. In the Judeo-Christian thought, the heart is wherein God is revealed and made manifest. As such, it is the subject of frequent and profound scriptural references, such as, Blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. Matthew 5, 8. Heart analogies abound in early Christian scripture, commentary, and prayer life. Gregory Nazianzus appropriated the numbers episode of Moses, producing a torrent by striking a desert rock this trusty rod. Gregory prayed, send compunction about upon me, and as in the past, with the rock in the desert, make my stony and petrified heart gush forth fountains of tears. The heart is likened to the earth in which a seed is sown, to a field where treasure is hidden, spring for the Spirit's life-giving water, a tablet for God's letter, a lyre for divine compositions, the innermost chamber of worship into which the devil steals to set up a false image upon the altar of sanctification before he sneaks out again. The heart is a bush burned by fire but not consumed, no matter how fevered the body the heart is the place of shadows where Christ descends. It is the empty tomb from which Christ resurrects once an oppressive stone is lifted. The heart is the locus of conscience. Not as that small voice that tells you what's right and what's wrong, but rather the judgment seat that assesses the degree to which we have loved or not loved. heart is likened to an iron gate to the city, closely guarded, but still something that could be suddenly swung open, as it was for Peter. Serbian metropolitan Hierotheos Lakos instructs, if the noose 
M-O-U-S a Greek word meaning the intellect of the heart. If, if the intellect of the heart is healthy, love is also healthy. If it is ill, we fall from true love. Thus the heart can be thought of as possessing its own pathology, a subject for diagnosis, prescription, and therapy. The heart can be a subject of spiritual malfunction. It can be broken and darkened, wounded, injured, <coughs> scar-hardened, aggrieved, dislocated, crushed, its energies dispersed. I'm tempted to, on the count of three, have everyone here who has never ever experienced what they would guess would be a heartache to raise your hand or stand up so the rest of us can applaud you in envy. <laughs> One, two, three. I thought so. Those of the Judeo-Christian religion may, in these circumstances of heartache, may take heart in light of Psalm 51, verse 17. The sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. God will not spare. It is said in the tradition that Satan fears a broken heart, like a hot iron, because within it there is no more room for vain fantasies and misleading dreams. So finally, we get to that theological typology, that catalog of tears within tradition. Tears witness to a heart that has been wounded, crushed, broken, darkened, lost. Callistos Ware will be followed as he folded a typology of tears into the threefold states of being as elucidated by Mark the Ascetic in the fifth century. Number one, contranatural tears are characteristic of a contra-natural state of being, which are, these tears are usually outwardly expressed, externally manifested. These are the violent tears of the body, the tears of overwrought emotion, usually accompanied by a flushed face, and, and shuddering body, and, and audible sobbing. They're bound up with the passions of anger and impatience and hatred and frustration and self-pity. Unsupported by contrition, they are indicative of fruitless pining, despair, and hopelessness. These tears might offer short-term alleviation, but usually long-term destruction. In the 17th chapter of Matthew, a father pleads to Jesus in behalf of his afflicted son who keeps falling into the fire and water. Could not the fire and water be interpreted as anger and tears? Also qualifying for this category are the tears of the hell we sometimes create for ourselves 
and for each other. For example, the tears one sees from those who are forced to face consequences for having engaged in activities about which they have absolutely no sorrow or remorse for having planned and executed. Here, I think, can't help but think of from time to time having flashbacks of these scenes of quite intense uh, weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth <coughs> from my time as an RA on the third floor of Sullivan. <coughs> oh, some of you know what I'm talking about. That's good. The more that you can relate your experience you know, to the material, um, I think the more you'll be in touch with what we're going to try to present. Also in this category, I would also install an intriguing type from secular categorization of tears, that is, tears of manipulation, a kind that we learned to produce when we were very young, and some of us have gone on to perfect and strategically employ to great effect as adults. Natural tears, number two. Weeping seems to be nature's way of absorbing the impact of welcome and unwelcome continuities and discontinuities in life, which we all must negotiate. Here, speaking of moments of discontinuity, I especially remember at the beginning of each fall semester at the freshman mass before the parents are to leave. The parents experience a juncture of discontinuity very deeply as they are bid to put their hands over their young freshman daughter or son and give them a blessing. I always find that I am very touched by that particular son. But no need to be detained long here in this category. These are the tears manifested outwardly or inwardly that are shed in positive circumstances such as personal celebration and pride and happiness in and for others. Those who fall in love, especially for the first time, find themselves inexplicably weeping from time to time. Counted here also, of course, is the weeping in the difficult and challenging circumstances of abandonment and suffering and bereavement and loss. <coughs> Isaac the Syrian seconds Gregory of Nazianzus in affirming that not to weep in any of these circumstances would be potentially disastrous for the person. <coughs> Yet, just as potentially damaging if engaged in immoderately or self-indulgently, um, that should be a warning signal also. So let us move on to type three, the supranatural tears, the gifted tears, properly speaking. These may be either outward or, and external, or inward 
John Climacus distinguishes between bitter and sweet. A bitter tears, very amnesia likens these to drops of blood from the wounds of the inner self. Here one might think of the prodigal son in dire straits in a far-off land, mourning a fate that he himself had made for himself. Of course, Luke explicitly labels Peter's tears as being of the bitter kind. In the text of Orthodox Vespers on Forgiveness Sunday, which is the Sunday immediately before the first day of Lent, there's a hymn in which Adam is pictured as outside the gates of paradise. The sound of Adam's lament, all creation responds accordingly. Quote, the beasts and the birds were hushed in grief while Adam wept because peace and love were lost all on account of his sin. Sweet tears, mostly of the inner sort. These are tears of the heart couched in prayer, gratitude, and hope. They are joyful, peaceful, and sweet. Gentle as snow upon the grass, writes John Chrysostom, yet potent enough to dissolve idols. They are of a compunction that, as John Climacus writes, mingles with the mourning and grief like honey in a comb. Bitter or sweet, this kind of exp tear expresses a heart on the way to healing. It is pain with a positive purpose. Sports trainers and health practitioners know this kind of pain on a natural level. This bitter and sweet is also referred to in the tradition as low and high. Let us briefly recall the episode of the woman who washed Jesus' feet with her tears and by that act of love was so forgiven. In the Western tradition, this woman came to be identified with Mary Magdalene. That identification never obtained in the East, so she will remain unnamed here as she is in the scriptures. Would you agree that it is not difficult to conceive of her tears as being of a, of a higher order than common bitter tearfulness, owing to the fact that the reality of the Nakut Yahweh, the kingdom of God, is already dawning in her as she approaches reclining guests. Perhaps even the same can be said of Peter's tears as he was confronted and overtaken by the glance in that old courtyard. Perhaps his weeping was taken up. Nature's transformation from night to morning, from darkness to the beginning of light, indicated by the cockcrow. Having already planted the image of Adam at the gates, here we can pause to consider William Leatherborough's assertion that, quote, man in Dostoevsky's work, as in Genesis, 
is a tragic split creature, excluded from paradise, but longing for reconciliation. Let us consider an example from Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment of a heart in need of healing. Dominic is set up the scene for us. This excerpt is from the Crime and Punishment, Part 5, Chapter 4. Raskolnikov murdered an aged pawnbroker and her younger sister, Lizaveta, by name. Sonia is an abused young woman who prostitutes herself in order to support her family. She had befriended Lizaveta. Raskolnikov comes to visit Sonia to her apartment. Perhaps he has something on his mind. What's the matter? What's the matter? Nothing, Sonia. Don't be afraid. How you are tormenting yourself. Look here, Sonia. Do you remember what I wanted to tell you yesterday? I was leaving and I, I said I might be saying goodbye to you forever. But that if I came back today, I, I would tell you who killed was about a have they found him? No. How do you know? Can't you guess? No. Take a good look. First, 
bow down and kiss the earth which you have defiled, and then bow down to all the four corners of the world and say to all men aloud, I am a murderer. Then God will give you life again. Will you go? Will you? Would you have me give myself up? Accept suffering and be redeemed by it. That is what you must do. Sonia, perhaps you better not come and see me in prison. Do you wear a cross? You don't, do you? Here. Take this one. It is of cypress wood. I have another. This copper one. You belong to Elizabeth. Don't you see? Take it. Please. We suffer together. Shall we, so we shall bear our crosses together. Not now, Sonia. Yes. It's better later. <coughs> when you accept your suffering, you will put it on. You will come to me, and I will put it on you. And then we will pray and go together. <coughs> Sonia's concern for Raskolnikov points to a third type. The tears of illumination term is that of John Chrysostom, yet another Eastern Byzantine contemporary of Augustine. These tears have been spoken about as an upward flowing kind of tears, as they reference the human condition. They are thought to possess a universalized, intercessory quality. Let us think of Jesus weeping over Jerusalem in Luke 19.41 text about which the great origin of the third century no less was not afraid to wax poetic about the tears of a weeping God. Tears of mourning for the whole human race should be our daily bread, so counseled Macarius of Egypt in the fourth century. Patton suggests that this upward-flowing type parallels the Buddhist ideal of tears of non-attachment that link to a celestial realm rather than to common embodied emotions. And likewise, in parallel, is the Islamic proto-Sufi movement of the al-Baka'un, the Hebrews, that derives its practice and praxis from the authority of the Prophet's recommendation to weep, or at least try to weep. So this subtype belongs to the Byzantine iconographic equivalent of the Western Pieta or Mater Dolorosa themes, where Mary's tears and the icons are consistently interpreted as being of the intercessory type for all that her son died for. Let's go now to Point three, from Penthos, sorrow, to Parthesis, consolation. Callisto's widow, 
regrounding in the conviction that the supernatural builds on the natural, is keen to caution against separating these categories into airtight compartments. Connectivity and transitions must be allowed in between the types and within the subtypes. This transition dynamic highlights the movement from the old self to a new self or from an old self to a recreated self. Movement, transition, transfiguration was a theme of Isaac the Syrian as he wrote, quote, when you reach the place of tears, know that your spirit has come out from the prison of this world and has set its foot upon a path that leads towards the new age. To indicate this liminal role of tears, Gregory Nazianzus lists tears among the five kinds of baptism. The baptism of Israel through the Red Sea, the baptism of John, the baptism in Christ, baptism by blood in martyrdom, and the baptism of tears. All waterings under the Lord's dispensation are under the forgiveness and unto the forgiveness of sins. Let us take a look at an example of a healed heart, one that knows this transition between sorrow and joy. Indeed, it's a mixture, a confusion of sorrow and joy. John Climacus even coined a word, karmolipi. It means joy sorrow together as an indication that healing is taking place. So, an example now of a healed heart. Brothers Karamazov. And again, Dominic set the scene. From the Brothers Karamazov, this is the chapter Cana of Galilee. An exhausted young Alyosha falls asleep while listening to Father Peosi's reading of a gospel passage over the coffin of Alyosha's beloved mentor, Father Zosima. <coughs> he dreams that Zosima is a character from inside the Bible story, and the elder bids the youth to take an adjoining place with him in the story. It was very late by monastery rules when Alyosha returned to the hermitage. The doorkeeper let him in by a special entrance. It had struck nine o'clock, the hour and rest of and repose, after a day of such agitation for all. Alyosha timidly opened the door and went into the elder's cell where his coffin was now standing. There was no one in the cell but Father Piosi, reading the gospel in solitude over the coffin. Though Father Piosi heard Alyosha come in, he did not even look in his direction. Alyosha turned to the right from the door to the corner and fell on his knees. He began listening to what Father Piosi was reading, 
but worn out with exhaustion, he gradually began to doze. And the third day, there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, read Father Paiosi, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. Ah, yes, I was missing that, and I didn't want to miss it. I love that passage. It's Cana of Galilee, the first miracle. Ah, that miracle. Ah, that sweet miracle. It was not men's grief, but their joy Christ visited. He, visited, he worked his first miracle to help men's gladness. He who loves men loves their gladness too. But what's this? What's this? Why is the room growing wider? Ah, yes. It's the marriage, the wedding. Yes, of course. Here are the guests. Here are the young couples sitting and the merry crowd. Where is the wise governor of the feast? But who is this? Who? Again, the walls are receding. Who is getting up from the great table? But he here too. But he's in the coffin. But he's here too. He has stood up. He sees me. He is coming here. God. Yes, he came up to him. To him, he, the little, thin old man with tiny wrinkles on his face, joyful and laughing softly. There was no coffin now, and he was in the same dress he had worn yesterday sitting with them. When the visitors had gathered about him, his face was uncovered, his eyes were shining. How was this then? He too had been called to the feast. He too at the marriage of Cana in the alley. Yes, my son. I am here too. Called. Called and bidden. But why have you hidden yourself here, out of sight? You come and join us too. It was his voice, the voice of Father Zasana. And it must be he, since he called him. The elder raised Alyosha by the hand, and he rose from his knees. We are rejoicing. We are drinking the new wine, the wine of the new great gladness. Do you see how many guests? There is the bride and bridegroom. There is the wise governor of the feast. He's tasting the new wine. But why do you wonder at me? I gave an onion to a beggar. So I too am here. And many here have given only an onion each. Only one little onion. What are all our deeds? And you, my gentle one. You, my kind boy. You too have known how to give an onion to a famished woman today. Begin your work. Dear one, begin it. Gentle one. Do you see our son? Do you see him? I am afraid. I dare not look, whispered Alyosha. Do not fear him. He is terrible in his greatness, awesome in his sublimity, but infinitely merciful. He has made himself like unto us from love and rejoices with us. He is turning the water into wine, that the gladness of the guests may not be cut short. 
and he is expecting new guests. He is calling new ones unceasingly, forever and ever. There they are bringing the new wine. Do you see? They're bringing the vessels. Something glowed in Alyosha's heart. Something filled it till it ached. Tears of rapture rose from his soul. He stretched out his hands, uttered a cry, and woke up. Again, the coffin, the open window, and the soft, solemn, distinct reading of the gospel. But Alyosha did not listen to the reading. It was strange. He had fallen asleep on his knees, but now he was on his feet. And suddenly, as though thrown forward with three firm, rapid steps, he went right up to the coffin. His shoulder brushed up against Father Paiosi without his noticing it. Father Paiosi raised his eyes for an instant from his book, but looked away again at once, seeing that something strange had happened to the youth. Alyosha gazed for half a minute at the coffin, at the covered, motionless dead man that lay in the coffin, with the icon on his breast and the peaked hood with the octangular cross on his head. He had only just been hearing his voice, and that voice was still ringing in his ears. He was listening, still expecting other words, but suddenly he turned sharply and went out of the cell. He did not stop on the steps either, but went quickly down. His soul, overflowing with rapture, yearned for freedom, space, openness, the vault of heaven with soft, shining stars stretched vast and fathomless above him. The Milky Way ran in two pale streams from the zenith to the horizon. The fresh, motionless, still night enfolded the earth. The white towers and golden domes of the cathedral gleamed out against the sapphire sky. The gorgeous autumn flowers in the beds round the house were slumbering till morning. The silence of earth seemed to melt into the silence of the heavens. The mystery of earth was one with the mystery of the stars. Alyosha stood, gazed, and suddenly threw himself down on the earth. He did not know why he embraced it. He could not have told why he longed so irresistibly to kiss it, to kiss it all. But he kissed it, weeping, sobbing, and watering it with his tears, and vowed passionately to love it, to love it forever and ever. Water the earth with the tears of your joy and love those tears. Echoed in his soul. What was he weeping over? Oh. In his rapture he was weeping even over those stars which were shining to him from the abyss of space. And he was not ashamed of that ecstasy. There seemed to be threads of all those innumerable worlds of God linking his soul to them and it was trembling all over in contact with other worlds. He longed to forgive everyone and for everything, and to beg forgiveness. Oh, not for himself, but for all men, for all and for everything. And others are praying for me too, echoed again in his soul. But with every instant he felt clearly, and as it were tangibly, that something firm unshakable as that vault of heaven had entered into his soul. It was as though some idea had seized the sovereignty of his mind, and it was for all his life and forever and ever. 
He had fallen on the earth a weak youth, but he rose up a resolute champion. And he knew and felt it suddenly at the very moment of his ecstasy. And never, never all his long life could Alyosha forget that minute. Someone visited my soul in that hour, he used to say afterwards, with implicit faith in his words. Within three days, he left the monastery in accordance with the words of his elder, who had bidden him to sojourn in the world. Near the end of World War II, Russian military leaders orchestrated a march of 2,000 German soldiers across Red Square, a raucous reception of curses upon the enemy and cries of adulation for themselves would be something to be savored. But the show parade did not elicit the expected response. The poet, activist, Evgeny Yevtushenko's mother took him from Siberia to Moscow to view the spectacle. He recalls in his autobiography. The pavements swarmed with onlookers, courted off by soldiers and police. The crowd was mostly women, Russian women, with hands roughened by hard work, lips untouched by lipstick, and with thin, hunched shoulders which had borne half of the burden of the war. Every one of them must have had a father, or a husband, or a son, killed by the Germans. They gazed with hatred in the direction from which the column was here. At last we saw it. The generals marched at the head, massive chins stuck out, folded disdainfully. Their whole demeanor meant to show superiority over their plebeian victors. They smell of perfume, the bastards, someone in the crowd said with hatred. The women were clenching their fists. The soldiers and policemen had all they could do to hold them back. <coughs> all at once, something happened to them. They saw the common German soldiers, thin, unshaven, wearing dirty, blood-stained bandages, hobbling on crutches or leaning on the shoulders of their comrades. The soldiers walked with their heads down. The street became dead silent. The only sound was the shuffling of boots or the thumping of crutches. Then I saw an elderly woman in broken-down boots push herself forward and touch a policeman's shoulder, saying, let me through. There must have been something about her which made him step aside. She went up to the column, took from inside her coat something wrapped in a little colored handkerchief, and unfolded it. It was a crust of black bread. She pushed it awkwardly into the pocket of a soldier, so exhausted that he was tottering on his feet. And now, from every side, women were running toward the soldiers, pushing into their hands <coughs> bread, cigarettes, whatever they had. The soldiers were no longer enemies. They were people. Implications for the 
Lenten season. Dorotheos of Gaza writes of Lent as the saving day set apart as a time of the year that recognizes that all times and seasons belong to the Lord. Here, Eastern Christianity employs that concept of karma lippi, of joy sorrow, in its consideration of Lent. And the emphasis is on joy. The emphasis is on brightness. The church welcomes Lent as a spring with a spirit of exaltation, splendor, and delight, and a sense of adventure, no gloomy darkness, masochistic tendencies, morbid or anxious introspection, no room for sentimental devotions or suffering with Jesus type of motivations. No need to reject this time of penance as a barbarous hangover from some dark age. Lent is greeted as a sanctified season of correction purification, transformation, and enlightenment, and yes, joy. From the Lenten Third Sunday Vespers, the prayer, we embrace you, the only hope of the world. Through you, our tears are wiped away and freed from the snares of death. We pass over into everlasting joy. Reveal your beauty to us, O Lord, through the cross. And for a conclusion, many of us come to the point in our lives when we feel that we have to affirm the suggestion, what other people tell us, that sometimes there's nothing else that we can do but cry. The tradition we have been considering suggests that to weep is not a sign of resignation, but rather a positive recommendation. Healing simply knows no other way than weeping, at least inwardly, for external tears are never required. To whom should we grant the last word today? Perhaps to the Romanian theologian Ian Chorin, who speculates that at the fullness of history, it's not sins that will be weighed, but rather only tears. Or perhaps John Climacus, who says of the final reckoning, we shall not be accused because we did not work miracles or become theologians or see visions, but we certainly will be called to account because we did not mourn. The choice does fall to John again. John Climacus, coiner of joy sorrow. As he writes, put on blessed and grace-filled mourning as a wedding robe, and you shall know spiritual laughter. Thank you. The time has come that maybe we can spend a, a quick few minutes. If someone has a uh, comments, uh, a call for clarification, or as was suggested before, uh, 
a suggestion of your own of, of examples of, of mourning and where they could be located, um, I'd be welcome to respond or to receive your thought. Anyone? Okay, going once, going twice. Okay, then we'll welcome back Dominic for the closing. It was my utmost privilege to welcome you all to this presentation, and now it is my duty to dismiss you. With a suggestion on how to personally invest in the spirit of this month and season. And those of us who are involved with today's presentation suggest that sometime soon you bring before your mind's eye a particular someone in your life from whom you need to request forgiveness. He or she stands before you, <coughs> as did Jesus before Peter in the courtyard. Imagine that person saying, so, here I am. How do you respond to me? I wish you all a peaceful and pleasant evening. Thank you.